In the book of John, if you'll open to chapter 2, we'll um, dig into our scripture this morning. Let me first say that uh, this set of verses is going to take a little bit for me to set up, so be a little patient, and then we'll draw some conclusions, but we'll walk through them uh, just a little bit line by line first. Last week, we saw Jesus, this uh, compassionate, loving Jesus, kind of save the day at a wedding in Cana, if you were with us, if you remember. And we noticed um, how Jesus cared so much for this wedding that he turned water into wine to kind of save the day. You could not find a more contrasting set of verses or image of Jesus than the one we're gonna look at today. You're gonna see an angry Jesus, one who barrels into the temple and just creates havoc because what's happening. And here's the thing I want you to start thinking about in your mind as we're going to look at these verses. A holy and a righteous God deserves our worship, right? A holy and righteous God deserves our worship. But when we casually come to God, come before God, we lose reverence for God. And when we lose reverence for God, we miss the privilege of worshiping God. We make it just one of these activities we participate in. A holy, righteous God deserves our worship, but when we casually come before God, we lose reverence. And when we lose reverence, we miss the privilege we have of worshiping God and being invited before him. I was uh, privileged in the year 2000 to take a trip to Russia. Now, Russia had just opened up to those from the West, and our denomination found a couple of spots that we could go to and begin to train pastors because nobody knew how long that would be possible to go. And so uh, I went for about a three-week period of time had the opportunity to train young pastors in Russia. It was a long airplane ride, and it was a longer train ride to get to where we were going. But here's the thing that sticks out to me this day. I saw people who truly understood the privilege of worshiping God. The town that I went to was a town of a million people. This was the only church in that town that was not owned and controlled by the Communist Party. Think of that. And so next to this very small building that we stayed in and trained pastors in was a very large brick church that, by the way, had no heat, and it was January. It would hold about 300 people. So you wore your winter coat, you could kind of see your breath in the church, and they have a two-hour church service. But was mistake, or I couldn't uh, be any more amazed than seeing people stand up truly and confessing their sin in front of all their peers. Singing songs that I recognized the tune, could not sing the words, but had somebody translating. So two hours in my winter coat, seeing your breath, that service is over, we walk out the doors, and 
in the lot in front of it was about 300 more people waiting to come in and worship. They'd been standing outside in the cold. It was snowing. And some had stood there an hour or an hour and a half. Some of them traveled an hour and a half by train just to get to worship. I mean, they truly understood the privilege of worshiping God. And that image is in my mind. And when we look at the passage this morning, I don't think you're going to see that same kind of image. So John chapter 2, we're going to start in verse 12. And we're going to go through verse 22 together. Here's what God says in his word. After this, he went down to Capernaum with his mother and his brothers and his disciples. And they stayed there for a few days. So real quick, they were in Cana. They traveled over to Capernaum, which was maybe 15 to 20 miles. And uh, after that, they're going to make this trip down to Jerusalem. Verse 13. The Passover of the Jews was at hand. And Jesus went up to Jerusalem. Whenever it says go up, it's an elevation reference because Jerusalem was higher. In the temple, he found those who were selling oxen and sheep and pigeons and the money changers sitting there. And making a whip of cords, he drove them all out of the temple with the sheep and the oxen And he poured out the coins of the money changers and overturned their tables. And he told those who who sold pigeons, take these things away. Do not make my father's house a house of trade. His disciples remembered that it was written, zeal for your house will consume me. Verse 18. So the Jews said to him, what sign do you show, uh, which sign do you show us for doing these things? Jesus answered them, destroy this temple, and in three days I will raise it up. The Jews then said, it has taken 46 years to build this temple. And will you raise it up in three days? but he was speaking about the temple of his body. When therefore he was raised from the dead, his disciples remembered that he had said this and they believed in the scripture and the word that Jesus had spoken. Quite a different Jesus, isn't it? Shows up at the temple, makes this trip, which would have been about 100 miles walking from where he was at in Capernaum, And he gets to Jerusalem for the feast of the Passover and goes to the temple, which would have been his practice. And he sees this chaotic scene right before his eyes. Every person who is Jewish was required to make a trip to Jerusalem once a year for the feast of the Passover. That's a week-long celebration. And so here's a town that we'll say maybe 20, 25,000 people would swell Jerusalem. 20 to 25,000 people to possibly a million people for a week once a year. I mean, it'd be like Ashland, right? Swelling to a million people. 
flooding the city for one purpose, to be there to worship. Now, let me help us understand the significance of some of this. First off, this was not Jesus's first trip to the temple. At age 12, um, Luke records Jesus making the trip. Remember, he stays in the temple with the teachers and is teaching, and his parents leave and have to come back and get him. The center or the focal point of that passage was on the word of God. Let me ask you this question. Did you read anywhere here that the word of God was the focal point? It certainly was not. Things had deteriorated in the worship of God. So, feast of the Passover, going to Jerusalem to offer sacrifices, to remember God's faithfulness, to remember God's deliverance, to remember God's salvation of his people from Exodus, the captivity of those in Egypt. That was to be the focal point. You go to temple, you bring your sacrifices to have your sins forgiven, but most importantly, to be reminded of who God is, what God has done, and the immense privilege of a holy and righteous God to invite you into his presence. Jesus shows up, he doesn't find that. He finds people selling animals and trading money. Various animals listed here for a couple of different kinds of sacrifices. The pigeons fit because if you're poor, you can't afford to buy a, a, a lamb or another animal to sacrifice. God had made provision for that. So you come to worship at the temple to offer your sacrifices. Now let's say you traveled 100 miles from where we read about Jesus. Are you gonna drag along the sheep with you? Are you gonna drag along some animals with you? Probably not. So as a way to make it possible for people to sacrifice, they could purchase those. Now you're gonna say, sounds reasonable, right? It does. But here's what was taking place. That used to take place outside of the temple, in the Kidron Valley, on the Mount of Olives, you could stop and you could change your money, and we'll talk about that in a minute, or purchase animals. But the religious leaders figured out a way to make some money. You know, what if we just kind of move that into the temple area proper? We can oversee these animals who have to be without blemish. We'll get a cut of the profit. And as a matter of fact, we'll set up some ways for people to trade their money so they have the right money because when you came to temple once a year, you had to pay a temple tithe. But you had to have the right kind of temple money. Make sense? Here's a way to make money. Here's a way for these religious leaders to take control of this and make money. Now let me pause for a minute because this might be starting to make sense. This next piece I think will completely help you. The temple area was 
an area maybe we'll say two football fields in size, okay? And it was set up in different areas. You came into the temple area through one of four gates, and the first area you came to was called the Gentile court. That was an area that only those who were converted to Judaism could enter. That was an area also that if you were unclean when you came to temple, before you were clean by Jewish ritual, you could worship. That was it. That was as far as you could go. Matter of fact, it was fear of death if you went beyond that into the next area. The next area was the temple of women, where some of the ceremonial washings would take place. And that area then connected to another area through a gate, through a wall, which was called the, the court of Israel or the court of priests. And that's where the holy place and the holy of holies existed. Where, think about it, maybe a million animals that we are getting sacrificed. You can only imagine how gruesome this was. <clears throat> The animals were located in the court of Gentiles. Those who were not pure Jews, that was as far as they could go. They, they weren't allowed to move any further in worship. So think about it like this. When you came into Substance this morning, <clears throat> you came through a set of doors and we have the cafe area, right? And in that cafe area, let's say we've got some different tables set up besides the donut table and all the good stuff. We've, we've got a bunch of other tables set up. One is, if you want to pay your tithe, you've got to come on over to the substance money-changing table. And guess who is in charge of the exchange rate? Just like the temple, the religious leaders. So you want to change 20 bucks, it's going to cost you 40 bucks. So you got lines of people having to change their money in the temple area. And also in the area of the cafe, you know, we're going to do communion this morning. So you got to go to one table to buy a cube of bread. That piece of bread is going to cost you 50 bucks. And then you're going to have to purchase the cup to share in communion. That'll cost you another 50 bucks. Oh, you want a, you want a bulletin so you can sing? Well, well, we'll let you buy one of those too. But some of you won't be allowed to go beyond the cafe and come in this area and worship. You can only stay in that area. How hard do you think it would be to find a corner to sing in, to pray in, to study scripture in, among all that chaos. Think about that. And think that this was the only area in town where that could happen. So it was a constant flow of people. Jesus walks in and he's angry. He's angry because it was impossible for people to worship because of all the commerce and trade that was happening. Get the picture? It sets the stage, doesn't it? A little bit for what Jesus was angry 
about. And so Jesus comes in and he should have expected to see reverence for the holy, righteous God and the people coming, seeing it a privilege. He, he should have seen brokenness from sinful people who were anxious to have their sins forgiven and give their sacrifice. He should have seen praise on people's lips as they sang for the privilege to come before God. He should have seen open doors of opportunity for anyone who wanted to seek God. Welcoming. Come worship God. He should have seen the word of God being taught and proclaimed and preached. Should have seen people exuberant and thankful in humility. But that's not what he saw. That's not the scene Jesus experienced. Worship had been reduced to a practice, a ritual to participate in, an activity void of intimacy and awe of God. This is my one time a year to come to Jerusalem. Let's get done what I came to do. Instead, Jesus saw worship had been regulated now by man. And approaching God was something men would oversee and orchestrate. You didn't come on your own. You had to do it their way. It was simply an action to follow and a way for people to make money. People who wanted to worship were prohibited and not welcomed. And so the worship of God became a marketplace and a stockyard, a place of trade, and Jesus won't tolerate it. Do you realize Jesus gets angry about the same thing today? The, the way we as his people approach him and worship will rile up Jesus. A holy and a righteous God deserves our worship. But when we approach God casually and lack of reverence gets kicked in, we fail to see the privilege we have of worshiping God. By the way, Jesus has to clean the temple out twice. This scene takes place at the beginning of his ministry. We will see Jesus come back and face the same thing again at the end of his ministry. People didn't get it. People didn't really care. And so Jesus is making a statement I find it interesting when Jesus goes in and starts to clean house, this phrase, he made a whip of cords. Where do you get the cords? Well, he would have been letting animals loose that were tied up. And he would have taken the reins and the things that tied them up and fashioned a cord. 
I want you to note that because this wasn't a, let me stroll in and 15 minutes we'll get this place cleaned out. This took some time. This took some time. And so he cleans out the temple area and it angers the religious leaders. And this begins the battle Jesus faces throughout his whole life and ministry with church leaders. Like, like stop it, he says. Don't, don't do this to the place where God has set up his presence for you to come and worship and dwell with me. Stop it. They don't get it. They don't, they don't get it. It's like, well, we come do our thing. And so maybe for us, there's some things that we need to dig into this morning that I want us to consider before we take communion. And then we look at this passage and the way Jesus approached it and what he said. First is this. How do you tend to approach God in your life? Do you see it as a great privilege that God offers to you? Do, do you see it as the one and only holy, righteous God saying, come, worship me? Or do you tend to think of it as a duty? Monday morning, I'll get up and I better get my devotion done. And so check mark, you know, God's probably happy because I got that, that piece done for the day. And, uh, Let's, let's make sure we pray before meals, kids and family, and boom, done. Or maybe even this morning, how did you come? I mean, we do have good donuts. But did you come understanding the privilege God is giving you to come before him? Or did you come because it's a ritual. It's not hard in Ashland to find somebody and ask them, hey, tell me about your faith. And they'll say, well, I grew up going to such and such church all my life. Well, nice. But is that really what identifies your faith? An activity? God must never become ordinary for us. An object that we pay tribute to an act that you casually participate in. The, the holiness and righteousness of God reveals our sin and our need to have our sin forgiving. And when you get that, as we were singing this morning, you come humbly. You come humbly, thanking God that he would welcome you to come before him and sing and pray and spend time with him intimately. But I, and I assume you as well, can very easily make approaching God very ritualistic. Very ritualistic. We know most of the songs we sang this morning. I can just kind of sing along without pausing to say, wait a minute. Wait a minute. Do I realize 
the holy God that we just sang about? The immense, awesome privilege to come before him? The psalmist writes in Psalm 51, verses 16 and 17 this, For you will not delight in sacrifice, or I would give it. You'll not be pleased with a burnt offering. The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart. You know, it's easy to some degree, it might cost you a little money. It's easy to give some kind of sacrifice. We're a pretty affluent society, folks. We could buy our own figuratively animal to sacrifice and make God happy. But what does he want? He wants a broken and contrite heart. And may I suggest to you the only way that happens is by seeing your sin in contrast to a holy God. God says, I don't want empty actions. I want you to love me. I want you to see my holiness and my righteousness against your sinfulness. Then you will have a contrite heart. And then you will see the privilege I give you to come and worship me. But we have this problem. As Isaiah 29 says, matter of fact, Jesus repeats this. Isaiah 29, 13. And the Lord said, because this people draw near with their mouth and honor me with their lips, while their hearts are far from me, and their fear of me is a commandment taught by men. Easy to honor God with our lips and have our hearts far away, isn't it? We must see the privilege of coming before a holy and righteous God that God grants to you and me to come. How do we do that? Two things came to mind for me this week. First, we have to make sure we put God in his rightful place. You come before God anytime, put God in his rightful place. The sovereign Lord, the creator of all things, the creator of you and me, who is holy, who is righteous, who is just, who is merciful, who is gracious. All those words we use. Put God in his rightful place. And then align your heart second to that. When God's in his rightful place, I can come with a humble heart. I truly understand privilege of coming before God because I don't come thinking I deserve it somehow. Put God in his rightful place and then align your heart to that. Now, Jesus wasn't angry at the people buying ang- uh, the animals. Let me, let me make sure we understand this. He wasn't mad because people came and bought these animals. Hey, that was on the religious leaders. Their their guilt and fault for that. But I do think Jesus was angry at the overall atmosphere. Because we don't read anybody from the crowd saying, hey, isn't this wrong? 
hey, this shouldn't be this way, should it? They've just kind of all just got in the groove and did what they're supposed to do. A second thing that I want us to hit this morning as I read this is how do you respond when Jesus points out your sin? Jesus was confronted by the religious leaders and said this, hey, who gives you the right to come in here and do this stuff? I'm paraphrasing a bit, but maybe they were thinking, hey, you know how much money this is costing us, Jesus? You know what you're doing to our place? We, we just got this all set up the way we want it. You're just throwing money around and you're letting animals loose. And Jesus was confronting them on their sin. And the question then is how do we react when Jesus confronts us about our sin? You think about the religious leaders and the way Jesus confronts them. There's no humility on their part to hear what Jesus said. I mean, let's be honest. They knew the temple area and why it existed. It was the place God dwelt with his people. It's the place you came to have your sins forgiven and atoned for. It was the place you could be restored back to God. They knew that. They were appointed by God to oversee all that. And there is no brokenness and there is no humility on their part whatsoever. When the holiness of God is ignored, sin's going to be ignored. And when sin's ignored, when somebody confronts you, God confronts you, you're going to get defensive about it, right? You'll be defensive about your sin. But if you're taking notes, I want you to write this down. There are really only two ways you will deal with sin in your life when confronted by Christ. One is you confess it and repent of it. Or the second is you rationalize it. You, you rationalize it. And you make it seem not too bad I mean, think about these religious leaders. Can you think how their mind thought? Well, Jesus, you set the system up to begin with. We're just trying to make it easy. Hey, hey, Jesus, you told us to do all this stuff, so, you know, you just kind of got to live with the consequences if I'm not doing it the way we should. You either repent of your sin or you rationalize it. How do you respond when Jesus confronts you? about your sin. 1 John 1.8 says this, if we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves, and the truth is not in us. Sin's very nature is deceptiveness, isn't it? Deceive you, trick you, make you miss the importance and offense to God that sin is. How did they get so lackadaisical about this sin. I want to say one way is what I said a little bit ago is that we see no mention of the word of God in this passage. You know, the word of God exposes our sin because it reminds us of who God is. It reminds us of his holiness and his, his righteousness and our 
sinfulness. Each week in our worship service, Scott very carefully inserts in our service a time of confession. Why? Why does he do that? Because becoming before God should always reveal sin in our life. No matter how big, how small, if you come before God, putting God in his proper place, it will expose your sin. Okay. And that should remind us of 1 John 1, 9. If we confess our sin, he's faithful and just to forgive our sin, right? And cleanse us. It's not to beat up on us on our sin. It's to remind us of the holy, righteous God who says, confess your sin to me. I'll cleanse you and I'll restore you. That's God's offer. And when we get that, we see worship as a privilege. Third and last point this morning is this. Jesus is the true temple. And Jesus makes note of that. He's the revealer of the gospel. Let me remind you, the temple was the place people came to meet with God, to have their sins atoned for and forgiven, and then to be restored in relationship to God. All the way back from the tabernacle, then to the temple. That was God's dwelling place. That's where people came to have their sins dealt with. But it wasn't only a temporary structure. It was a man-made building that would be destroyed. As a matter of fact, three times it would be destroyed. But the scene at the temple reveals how legalism and ritual kept people from seeing the gospel. Here's Jesus throwing money on the floor, turning over tables, letting animals loose, angry And you remember he's called the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Do you remember that? Just a few verses before, standing before the religious leaders. This wasn't a surprise to them. And yet, they missed it. If you've got your Bibles, turn with me to Hebrews chapter 9. And we're going to look at just a couple of verses reminding us that Jesus is the true temple. Just a little before this, the writer of Hebrews says, the blood of animals can never fully deal with our sin, but would point to a Christ who can. Chapter 9, verses 11 and 12. But when Christ appeared as a high priest of the good things that have come, then through the greater and more perfect tent, not made with hands, that is, not of this creation, verse 12, he entered once for all into the holy places, not by means of the blood of goats and calves, but by the means of his own blood, and listen, thus securing an eternal redemption. Securing an eternal redemption. Christ Jesus is the true temple. And so when Jesus said, you're destroying this temple, I'll build it back up in three days, 
Here's what they should have heard. I, as I studied this week and, and went back to kind of the original language of what Jesus said, I will raise it up. Here's what they should have heard. Here's what it meant. It means to awaken from sleep, or catch this, to awaken from death. He says three days. Three days is a reference to him. They should have caught it. These are the people who knew the scriptures, and they didn't. And Jesus proclaims he would rebuild the temple in three days, a reference to his resurrection. Jesus, the true temple, defeats death and now intervenes for us who are followers of his. Jesus, the true temple, who opens the way to God. You remember Jesus' death, the temple curtain was ripped in half, meaning man has full access to God through Christ. The temple where sins were atoned for. Now, Jesus, the true temple. In a few weeks, we'll read John 14, 6. But think of what we've been studying this morning about Jesus being the true temple. And think of this. Jesus said, I'm the way, I'm the truth, I'm the life. No man comes to the Father except through me. How did you get to the Father before Jesus? The temple. Now the only way to the Father? Through Christ. Jesus is the true temple. This morning, we're going to take communion together. And as we get ready to do this, we've moved our time of confession before we take communion. And we did that intentionally because the truth is, maybe you come from a background of a denomination or church that this simply is a religion religious ritual you participate in. And we don't want communion to be a ritual. I mean, it is the time we remember of God's deliverance, like the Passover would have been, that, that we come to the table. And when Jesus said, this is my body broken for you, and then this is cup represents my blood shed for you for the forgiveness of sins, we want this to be a time where we introspectively ask ourselves, do you see God as holy and righteous and put your sinfulness in a place that now you understand the privilege of coming and sharing communion? That, that's the heart, I think, that Jesus wants from us. That, that's the heart he's asking us if we have. This is not a ritual. It's a reminder of the life, death, and resurrection of Christ. Jesus, the true temple, who is the only way to being right with the Father, the only way to have our sins forgiven, the only way back to God to be restored. That's what we will celebrate in, not a ritual, but a privilege. So I'm going to ask us to bow our heads. The worship team is going to come up. The ushers will come. And I'm going to ask you to do a, a couple of things quietly, and then I'll lead us in a prayer of confession. 
But I want you to ask yourself this morning, does God have his proper place in your heart? Do, do you see God for who he truly is and recognize the privilege myself and all of you have to even gather corporately before him? Second, I want you to ask yourself, what's your heart posture if Jesus is confronting you on some sins this morning? Is it to rationalize it? Or is it going to be to confess and repent? And then third, as we get ready to take communion, I want you to spend a few minutes thinking about Jesus being the true temple. The amazing gift to us that is now the way for us to be reconciled to God.